Well, I'm just out of school. I'm a real, real cool. I got the jump, I got the jab, I got the message. I'm a level, I'm a one, I'm a wild one. Ooh, yeah, yeah, I'm a wild one. I'm gonna keep on shaking, baby. Gonna keep on It's 2013, the world hasn't ended, but it's up in arms in rebellion. It can only be... The Crash and Burn Movie Podcast. Good evening, we're back. We are indeedy doody. It has been a long hiatus. We did our last show of 2012 um, and we suspected the world might end. It didn't. And it took me four weeks to dig him out of his fallout shelter and his, his survival bunker. There, there he was go. in his back garden, 35 foot underground, armor light rifle and, and, and stacks of pot noodle. And there was me calling down the shop. Come on out. No, it's not safe yet. I got it wrong. I wanted stacks of pot. I ended up with stacks of pot noodle. <laughs> Here we go. Anyway. Um, the thing is, he, he forgot the kettle. I forgot the kettle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's the, be serious. To the uninitiated, if this is the first and possibly last time you've ever tuned into this podcast, this is the Crash and Burn movie podcast. This is a podcast about movies. Every episode, we take a theme and we recommend a few movies we like each and then at the end we pick a movie that's notoriously so bad it's great and we talk about that as well yeah and that's what we do yeah we also mention new releases and what we've been watching on the telly recently film wise watch telly anymore film wise film wise film wise dvds videos that kind of thing (coughs) pirated films occasionally but not that we condone it no but never mind there we are we're totally legal here aren't we well i am Fair enough. Anyway, to any regular listeners we might have, um, apologies for the hiatus. It's my fault. I have a tremendously busy life and I didn't get a chance to watch many films. Um, There's also going to be a bit of a change to the format uh, of the show because of my uh, time constraints. Um, We're not going to focus on three films each within the theme anymore. We're just going to do the one. Maybe more if it's a special occasion or if I've had time to watch more than one film, uh, which on pre- previous uh, previous evidence is not going to be that often. But um, I'll build up to them. I'll try and we'll try and build up a few themes in advance, maybe, and yeah. get a few super episodes done in the future. But from this episode and going forward, just to maintain basically the the regularity of the shows, we're only going to focus on in the theme selection one film each. Um, so probably it'll be a slightly shorter show, which will be merciful for some of our listeners. Speaking of listeners, we do have a bit of apologies apologies here for one of our listeners. Do we? We do. Do you remember the chap I told you about in the last episode, or in the episode before that? Um, 
it was our a guy who claimed to have listened to all of our shows, um, who I met on a, a forum. Yeah. And uh, we proceeded to possibly get his surname wrong and take the mickey out of him as well. Not only in a friendly sort in of way. In a friendly sort of way. However, having got a 50-50 guess on what his surname actually was, I did get his first name wrong as well. <laughs> and obviously... <laughs> I have apologised to the said person. I will give you his proper name now. His name is Tim Stannard, not Martin Stannard or Stanford. It's Stannard. Mark Tim, Tim Stannard. Tim Stannard, who uh, did take it all in good faith and thought it was hilarious. Um, oh, good. He said he was driving, driving along when he heard it and uh, nearly uh, nearly wet himself and possibly crashed the car. Um, bit too much information, but there we mm. go. That's Tim. Uh, we appreciate your sense of humour. And we apologise for uh, fucking your name up and um, and insulting you last time. And please keep this name. Yeah, please. Yeah, okay. We'll be your best mate. Absolutely. So that was Tim. Right. Get you an orange for Christmas. Fantastic. Without further ado then, should we move on to what we've been watching? I imagine we've both got yeah. a, a big list because it's been well, such I've got a while. four here. Um, I've probably got about double that. So I might rip through... Okay, you rip through a couple, and I'll do a couple. I'll tell you how I will do this. Shall I rip through the four shit ones that I've watched? Yeah, 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 give us the shit. Give us the shit. You can have the shit first, and then I've got the good ones at the end. Okay. So, shit films. I watched Hard Rock Zombies from 1985. Is that a trauma, isn't it? Uh, I don't believe it's a trauma. It's directed by... It's an Indian director called Krishna Shah. um, And it starred the aptly named EJ Curse, which was quite good. Uh... Feckin' terrible zombie movie about a feckin' terrible 80s rock band with feckin' terrible music, appalling acting and scripts. Just when the band couldn't get any more camp, they top it off by becoming especially feckin' camp zombies. And Hitler is in it. It was shite. It really was. Uh, It's it's not going to make us so bad it's great. It's just going to make us so bad it's shite then. I was almost tempted to to, to pop the DVD over to you to see what you thought of it. I think it might be more up your alley than mine, possibly. Yeah. Um, Maybe on second viewing it might make it into so bad it's good. But I was seriously traumatised by it. Learn us the DVD and uh, I'll see what I make of it. Yeah. Okay. So... Hard Rock Zombies, and next one was Forbidden World, a.k.a. Mutant, from 1982, uh, directed by Alan Holtman, who did nothing else of any note that I could see at all. It's a Corman-produced alien rip-off. It's very nicely atmospheric, but completely let down by the uh, styrofoam alien. Um, absolutely blew the... blew the... any kind of um, sort of sense of realism to it as soon as you saw it. Um, but there was lots of tits and ass in it to make up for that, which kind of rescued it. Makes it, it a typical Corman, then. Uh, a very typical 80s Corman film. And I do like Corman. Um, so. Tits and ass couldn't quite save it from the poor styrofoam creature, but uh, not not so bad it was great. It was just kind mm. of He bad. did a few sort of alien attempts at ripping Alien off, didn't he? Because he did Alien that, Within. Uh, there was Alien Within. There's um, Humanoid, the, what was it? Yeah. Monsters from the Deep, which is sort of Alien-esque. And that one, I think we featured early on, um, Galaxy of Terror, I think yeah. it was a Corman-produced one. <laughs> and that was so bad, it was great, as we covered there. Roger Corman, we salute you, dude. We do indeed. Uh, I also watched Deep Star 6 from 1989. I plumb in the 80s a bit for, uh, for this. This one um, uh, is directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who directed Friday the 13th and The New Kids. Uh, stars Nancy Everard, Greg Evigan, Mikhail Ferrer, and Matt McCoy, none of whom I recognised at all, apart from 
Greg Evigan, who apparently played the guy with the beard and the mullet in My Two Dads, the very bad late 80s sitcom that they showed on Channel 4. Mm, in this can't remember it, thank fuck. Probably a time when you didn't own a television, I suspect. <laughs> there was a reason why I didn't own a television yeah, that might have been a reason. My Two Dads was probably a good reason not to own it, but, I mean, it was worth it for the mullet. It has to be Yeah. Um, yeah, this was an atmospheric undersea creature feature, Unfortunately, something of a poor man's abyss, certainly lacking the budget, script, acting and special effects. Uh, convincing undersea setting, but clumsy script with poor characterization and development. Um, the incompetent crew do a better job of killing each other through stupidity, and the poor creature barely gets a look in. So some good set pieces, but ultimately a pretty poor movie. And the last bit of crap that I watched uh, a little bit later. This is A Lord of Illusions from 1995. I fancied a Clive Barker. Uh, I believe last time we spoke about uh, uh, Nightbreed. Well, yeah, we, we spoke about Nightbreed, but it had to be cut from the edit, if I remember rightly. Uh, we spoke briefly about it. Did we, we cut no. the majority of it, but we did mention it. We'll come back to Nightbreed on a future show. Absolutely. I'd love to cover Nightbreed, but uh, I thought I was looking through... Clive Barker's back catalogue. In fairness, I was forewarned. It got a reasonably average rating on the Internet Movie Database, but Clive Barker, director of Hellraiser and aforementioned Nightbreed. Uh, this film stars Scott Bakula, otherwise known as that bloke from Quantum Leap and Star Trek Enterprise. Oh, yeah, uh, the guy with the big nose, Kagan, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. That's the guy. Uh, this is a dark supernatural action thriller stroke horror with a touch of noir pulp detective story thrown in. Um, alas, the film teeters between fairly shocking with a few good sort of jump scares and set pieces and some some vivid sort of visuals. Um, it's let down by a shoddy narrative, some crappy character development of the lesser characters and some truly atrocious 90s CGI. Um, this really was not great. What at all. was Barker's involvement in it again? He directed it. Um, he may have even wrote the screenplay, quite possibly. Yeah, probably uh, based on one of his books of blood stories. Got most of his films. I'm up. afraid it, it it was it was average. It could have been a lot better. It did have some good moments yeah. in it. Well, that's what I find about Barker. He's very hit and miss. When he's good, he's great. When he's bad, he's a little bit iffy. Yeah. They absolutely ruin it in the middle with. Um, I mean, there's a very convincing ending with lots of physical effects, but I don't know whether. It was budget constraints or whether they had some technology and they just wanted to show it off. There are what look now some atrociously terrible, tacked-on, primitive sort of 90s CGI on it. Um, not good at all, unfortunately. So those were the crappy ones I watched. What about yourself? Well, I've you got watch? four here. That I've, that I've watched loads of films over the sort of since I last spoke to you, so... I'll just pick four kind of that stick in the mind. Go for it. We'll start off with one that I actually watched last night. I've been I playing a band and we did a gig last night and I came in, I had a few ciders in me and I had my kebab and I sat down, thought what's on telly and just starting was Rain and Fire. Um, can't remember who directed it. I should have written it down, but I didn't. But it's um, basically it's uh, Matthew McConaughey and uh, Christian Bale in a fairly good but low-budget British kind of creature feature. It's convincing, isn't it? Yeah, it was sort of like, I saw it at the cinema when it came out. Like, basically, there's they're digging an underground tunnel in London and it bursts into this chamber and in this chamber there's a sleeping dragon which wakes up and kind of lays a load of eggs which kind of catches into one shitload of dragons. It brings a whole load of dragon whoop-ass on. Yeah. <laughs> and, um... You know, and it's kind of how people are sort of like surviving with the dragons and then they work out how they can get rid of the dragons. And and it's really well done, kind of some good CGI effects with the dragons burning tanks and this kind of thing in it. And 
you know. Um, well, it's really reasonably well acted and quite tense and taut and highly recommended, I reckon. Cool. If you like a bit of brainish dragon action. Staying with the kind of um, fantasy-type creature, Dungeons & Dragons, etc. Um, I was in a charity shop just before Christmas, and I picked up a DVD special edition of Code and the Barbarian, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, the film that kind of... Not the film that made him, because he made his name in Terminator, but on the back of Terminator, they were looking for uh, a kind of vehicle to... It was his first really kind of... Mainstream, mainstream big budget sort of film, yeah. Wasn't it? yeah. And um, the it's got a really interesting. The version I've got's got a very interesting uh, kind of feature section. Includes goes into the all the whole making of the Conan film, and it's how kind of um, uh, this the writer again. I haven't written it down, but he's looking in the direction of the producers. They're looking around for something to star Arnie, and then in a charity shop or a thrift store, as they call them in the states, <laughs> he picks up a. Uh, was it Ron Howard or whatever his name is, the guy that wrote the Conan books, and he picked it up and looked at the cover with uh, no oh, someone these famous American Frank Belloc or someone artwork on the front, and went that's Arnie, and uh, developed it into what is surprisingly not a bad movie. Have you seen the second one, Conan the Destroyer? Yes, yeah. and that is a bad movie. And the third one, Red Sonia, is even worse. Now is that officially the third one? Because I don't. Well, it's the same old writer from the same book, yeah. and I don't think they actually name Arnie as Conan in there, but in the original book of Red Sonia, it is it is Conan. Red yeah. Sonia's his kind of barbarian girlfriend type thing, yeah, and that Red is Sonia's. Bridget, what's her name, isn't it? Bridget Nielsen. Nielsen yeah. It's appalling. But yeah. Conan the Barbarian is actually quite well done, quite witty in places, and lots of uh, people hitting each other over there with big swords. Absolutely. Highly recommended. Um... Then the ones that I've got a little bit more detail on, uh, oh, um, my nephew for Christmas got Cowboys and Aliens. Uh, John Farrano, who's the director, did the Iron Man movies, stars Daniel Craig, um, Harrison Ford, Clancy Brown, Sam Rockwell, and a few others. Quite well-known names. Um, it's 1873 Arizona. The aliens have arrived and are, mi- and are mining gold and abducting, abducting good old Western Frontier folks. Bastards. For the uh, for the labour, <coughs> and basically it's got to be the local lawman, as local lawmen and the townsfolk have got to team up with the local outlaws and the local Indians to kind of get an alliance together to whoop alien arse and boot them back into space. Nice special effects, quite well. Plots kind of quite engaging. Um, you seen that one? I haven't. Um, it's I don't know. Um... Me and action films, we don't get on, although mm. I'm probably going to go back on that very shortly with one of the ones I've watched. Haven't seen this one. Uh, we will probably, as a family, I think me, uh, my wife and my teenage stepson will probably watch it, and they've both seen it. Mm. So uh, may, may, I may get to watch I'll it. Say, I'll, I'll say it's worth giving a go. It, I, I was going to, I thought, mm, they didn't want to watch it, and I'm going, mm. but I stuck with it, and I did end up thoroughly enjoying it. Like Independence Day meets... Uh, High Plains Drifter, best way to describe it. <laughs> Fair enough. I yeah. like High Plains Drifter. I don't like, I don't like Independence. Oh, that's uh, what you call Roland we, <laughs> Emmerich, isn't it? <laughs> we've already spoken about him, yeah. Yeah, and that's the only mention of Roland <laughs> Emmerich. We're going to do this one. Excellent. Okay, and then the last one that is on my kind of ones that kind of stuck in the mind. 19, from 1998, uh, Mike Hodges, who was a Bristol lad. 
Okay. From this area. Um, best known for Get Carter and Flash Gordon. Indeed. We did Get Carter, didn't we, a few, we few did, episodes back? Yeah. Um, uh, Croupier, the film is, from 1998. Starring Clive Owen, is a struggling writer and needs the cash. So, uh, under pressure from his girlfriend to get a job. So he, and he used to have, it's implied that he used to have a bit of a gambling addiction. So he thought, all right, um, he can go out and get a job in the croupier because he knows how the gaming tables work and the casinos work and that. Um, so to make ends meet, he starts working as a croupier in this London casino. Um, and then finds inspiration from a new book from the people that he's meeting in the casino. And, uh, and as the story develops, the real life and what he's writing begin to blur, so you don't know what's fact and what's fiction. Clive Owen's brilliant. Kate Hardy's pretty good. Alex Kingston's not bad. Well acted. Strong plot. Lots of twists and that. Again, if you see it, it's been on film four a couple of times recently. If it's on film four, watch came, it. Uh, came dangerously close to uh, to picking that one in the, the gangster, um, the British gangster film uh, feature that we did. Uh, but just about missed out on that one, so we'll mm. definitely try and check that one out. Uh, right, we're into the good stuff now. <laughs> uh, you said the film ones I watched weren't good. Oh, yours were fucking terrible. <laughs> no, seriously, very interested to see Croupier, possibly even uh, Cowboys versus Aliens. Uh, but what I also have been watching the other evening, um, I watched from 1983, mine in the 80s again. Uh, the Keep. Have you heard? Oh of that? yes, classic uh, film. Books brilliant as directed well. Directed by Michael Mann, who, amongst other things, and I I'd not realised it was the same director when I was watching it. He did Heat, Last of the Mohicans, and The Insider, but most notably Manhunter, which I think is a bit of a personal favourite of both of ours. Yeah, yeah, got it over there on VHS. Anybody who yeah. doesn't know that is effectively the first filmed version of Red Dragon, the prequel to Science of the Lambs, isn't yeah. it? Um, and was later obviously remade. Uh, Manhunter has got an alternative actor playing, um, uh, what's his face? Hannibal Hannibal Lecter, yeah. Uh, but Manhunter, very good film. Uh, same director. I think it was 1983, so this would have been before Manhunter, wouldn't it? Cause yeah. Manhunter, Manhunter was, was about late 80s, 80s, yeah. 90s, isn't it? So. so, starring, uh, Scott Glenn, Gabriel Byrne, Jürgen Prochnow and Ian McKellen. It's a gripping supernatural chiller thriller. Set in World War Two, a platoon of Nazi soldiers are dispatched away from the front line to secure an ancient Romanian fortress, and they unwittingly unleash the force of pure evil lurking within. Um, I really enjoyed that one, actually. I had, it uh, is. Good movie. I saw the cast list, and I thought, well, you know, this hopefully would actually be quite good. Um, special effects have obviously dated a bit, but um, it's a good concept. It's very atmospheric. Uh, Gabriel Byrne plays uh, an SS commander, and he's an absolute nasty bastard, and it's really quite bizarre. Um, and I've been quite recently seeing a few documentaries about, uh, you know, the SS and... Uh, you just fl- of... you can't miss it in the UK. You just flick through fine yesterday and... Oh, SS Atrocities, SS Volume atrocities, 3. Yeah. But they, they also do a lot of documentaries about their... Uh, their links to the occult and, you know, what they were... Brings you to another one which I've watched and I've forgotten, but I'll talk about that in a second. Oh, OK, no worries. Well, I'll go through the next one and then yeah. you can bring that one up. Um, the other evening, this was a bit of a guilty indulgence in that I had a rare evening where I really didn't have a great deal of stuff to do, thankfully, and I was kicking back a bit and everybody else had crashed out and uh, Braveheart was on the television. Um, not... Um, not a favourite film of mine. I do like it. Obviously directed starring Mel You Gibson. can take our country, but you'll never take me face paint. <laughs> now, 
I I was I think that's the first uh, he directed the was it the man without uh, was it the man without a face or um, mm, can't remember he did this one um, and then did uh, Passion of the Christ which I've never been brave enough to see but you've seen it's, it's not and, bad uh, Apocalypto Apocalypto which is, is one superb. of my favourite films of all time. Um, and we have to cover Apocalypto at some point. In yeah. Some kind of, we have to build a theme just specifically so we can talk about Apocalypto. But Braveheart, earlier film, if you can get around the dodgy Scottish accent and a possible bit of liberties taken with uh, history, history uh, it's enjoyable. But what I really didn't realise, and my favourite part of Braveheart is not anything to do with Mel Gibson or any of these Scottish people. I really liked the performance of the guy who played the... You know, the King Edward I, the Edward the Longshanks or whatever. Was it the first or was it the second? It's the first because I looked it up today. Oh, right. And do you know who played the part of uh, Edward Longshanks in that? No. Film? Patrick McGowan, the prisoner. All oh, right, all oh, right, yeah. And, uh, completely unrecognisable. And obviously he died fairly recently, 2009, mm. I think. Um, but that's always been his performance. He's such a nasty bastard, again. Um his performance was always the, the bit about this film that I really liked. I did not realise it was Patrick McGowan. So I found that out today and was uh, quite surprised. Yeah. Um, Just want to throw in, we talked about the SS. I'm now, I'm, I am saving this for a so bad it's good slot on a future episode. Did you watch Iron Sky? No, I no. watched uh, SS Experiment Camp. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> When's that from? Oh, that 1972 or something like that. Is that one of these Nazi exploitation Yeah. Films? <laughs> um, basically, it's Nazis and there's kind of genital transplants experiments going on. Holy it's an excuse shit. to have Nazi soldiers <laughs> shagging, uh, shagging political prisoners and vice versa. And For fuck's sake! Yeah, uh, it's it's a twisted film, but it is it has to have me in stitches. We're not piss yourself laughing. So enough. that will come up probably next episode. The episode after is so bad it's good. So excellent stuff. Watch this space. Superb. I've got a few more um, from 1988. Back to the 80s again. Hell Comes to Frogtown. Have you seen or heard of Hell Comes heard to Frogtown? Heard of, I haven't seen. Uh, directed by, uh, actually there's two uh, two direct, joint directors, uh, Donald G. Jackson, who also directed an end, seemingly endless string of shockingly bad rollerblading sci-fi movies, and one called Lingerie Kickboxing. I've got to check out. I've lingerie got to see lingerie kickboxing. Uh, lingerie kickboxer and somebody called RZ Kisner. Um, apparently, he was only allowed to direct once more after this little-known generic action flick, rather unfortunately uh, named uh, Death Ring. So there we go. <laughs> <coughs> Coming back to that curry you had last night, I think night, it isn't was it? set in the curry house. I went to the <laughs> other night. So, um, but uh, getting back to hell comes to Frogtown. Stars Rowdy Roddy Piper, um, to everybody who possibly watches these things, former WWF wrestler and, and star uh, of They Live. Star of They Live, another one of my favourite films. Um, as uh, what is it? Rowdy Roddy Piper plays Sam Hell. What a name! Um, and it also stars a whole bunch of foxy chicks who get naked at some point, but I didn't write down their names because uh, you were, he wasn't thinking of. Their I wasn't faces. thinking about that, but I mean they they are very generic characters. I, I'll, I'll, I have to tell you this bit of the plot. <laughs> let me uh, let me read this out to you because it takes a bit of uh, believing. He's even put his beard down. For I this. put my beard down to read this out. I couldn't possibly paraphrase this very well, but um, I'll have a go. Essentially, it's the post-nuclear future. The surviving human race has been left virtually sterile with all the radiation. But Sam Hell, a wanted criminal, earns a last-minute reprieve from execution as it's discovered that he appears to be one of the few remaining fertile men on the planet. And he's given... Ek is, ek, 
echoes of Children of Men that we talked about Absolutely, recently. Absolutely, but there the echoes end, I'm afraid. Uh, he's given the arduous assignment of impregnating as many of the world's remaining fertile women as possible. Just one problem. Um, they more or less have all been captured by an evil race of mutant frog creatures. Ordinary frogs that have somehow mutated as a byproduct of the nuclear conflict. Uh, so Sam must head into Frogtown to kick mutant froggy butt and rescue the girls. Hence the name... Hell comes to Frogtown. <laughs> Fucking genius. <laughs> How um, I think of these things baffles me. Absolutely. Just to add some intrigue, if he decides to try and escape from his uh, incidentally female and foxy military handlers, Sam has been fitted with an irremovable military codpiece that's rigged to explode over a certain proximity. Echoes of escape from New York. Absolutely. Um, but Hilltown and... Uh, yeah, sort of Hilltown never had to go through that. They would never put an exploding codpiece on uh, on Hilltown. It's like Pliskin, it's not like Hilltown. Pliskin, not Hilltown. Yeah. That's some, uh, uh, what is it, Damnation Alley? Damnation Alley, the book. Which, yeah, because I understand why, because I always think that if they were ever going to film, properly film Damnation Alley, Kurt Russell would make a great Snake Pliskin. That would but... be fantastic. I wish they would properly film yeah. Damnation Alley. A, a proper... The, the George Peppard one is absolute I've shite. I've not seen it. Don't, don't bother, don't bother. Not even a So Bad It's Great? No, it's no. just... It's nothing to do with... The... Anyway, we'll go on to that. We'll talk about we'll that later. We'll get to that in a minute. But only a few more to go here. Um, I also saw The Hobbit uh, just before Christmas. Uh, obviously directed by Peter Jackson's Dory Marty Freeman, Ian McKellen, a whole bunch of famous actors pretending to be dwarfs. It's fucking awful. I'm really sorry. I didn't see it at the high frame rate, so I can't comment on that. That's caused a bit of bit of consternation because it's uh, you can see it at it was designed for this 48 frames a second. Yeah, it's supposed to, which I think is beating the objects a bit because a human eye can only re- only yeah, register 26 I mean, frames it looks a second. Different, and apparently it's Peter Jackson reckons it's the future of cinema, um, and everybody I've seen. I've not seen anybody who's seen it who liked it at 48 frames a second. So don't know whether that will catch on. I saw it in regular frame rate. Mm. Um, <sighs> it does not compare well with The Lord of the Rings. There is a mm. lot of retconning in it. There's a lot of stuff where um, Peter Jackson's had to make it so completely obvious that this links into The Lord of the Rings this way. Um, there is one truly outstanding bit in it, and that's the riddles in the dark bit. When Gollum is in it for that... 15 20 minutes it is one of it cinematically it is worth going to see it for that um but it just makes the first hour which yeah, is it's a bit like anyway. things like pearl harbor the bombing of pearl harbor is spectacular but it's wrapped around two and a half hours of shit film there is no way you could stretch that book into three films and at, at the first hour is really boring you get the dwarfs fucking singing. It's like carry on dwarfing at one point. It's, oh my God. And then it moves on a bit. There's a bit of action. And then Riddles in the Dark. Um, this, every time Gollum is on the screen, he is brilliant. The performance of Andy Circus is Yeah, I was about to say it's Andy Circus doing it again. Uh, cannot, cannot um, praise that highly enough. But when that finishes, you get to goblins. And uh, one notable thing, Barry Humphreys plays the King Goblin. <laughs> You have one of the campest goblins you've ever seen. Um, oh, God. There is a lot of fiddling with the book as well. There are no orcs in the book, but there are orcs in the film. There are several characters that didn't make it into the book that have been retrospectively added to the film, as if to tie them into Lord of the Rings. There is a bit of... My main problem with it is, though, um, 
is the look of it completely. Like Lord of the Rings trilogy was a very organic look. Well, film. me and the load of group of our mates, we actually saw all three Lord of the Rings films on release, didn't we? Uh, three we, consecutive years. I went with you to see the first one, and I didn't make it to see the other two. I oh, right. I know that home, but, we uh, did it with Sue and Nicky yeah, and that lot. Yeah. Uh, but uh, all three of those films have a, a consistent look to them. They look very organic. The camera angles are pretty audacious, but... In The Hobbit, the camera just flies around everywhere. It's all designed, you know, there's a lot of CGI on it, and it does, it falls foul of the criticism that a lot of CGI-heavy films get, is that they do look a bit like a computer game. It does, whereas Lord of the Rings Mm. didn't. It Mm. looked pretty brutal. Even when you knew what you were seeing couldn't possibly be real, it was convincing, whereas The Hobbit isn't. Um, So, That's funny with that, you know, because my nephew went to see it, and he turned around and said he came out feeling very disappointed. And everyone that I've spoken to it has said they were disappointment city, you know? Absolutely. I mean, uh, like, because I was talking to my nephew the other day and he was sentencing, like, again, I should have written this down, but um, I'm touching on it very briefly. Just for the hell of it, I sat down over the course of a week and, I, and every every evening when I was going before I went to bed, I watched one of the Harry Potter movies. I did the whole lot, okay. beginning to end. And, again, similar kind of thing, big epic, good versus evil books yeah you know um certain things some of the films are better than others but the general kind of ongoing plot engages you yeah but like i said everyone that i know has seen lord of the Rings, you gotta be so careful with doing these big epics and trilogies especially something that's, so that's well loved as the writings of tolkien i even though i don't like lord of the rings but do i do like not, the hobbit i do not know who is gonna possibly i don't know i think you're gonna probably alienate 50 percent of the audience that would have gone to do the second one purely by the weakness of the first one it's not three films it's probably could have been one really good film mm. um but trilogies i don't know who knows but that's the hobbit i also saw this is a film i featured as coming soon in one of the early episodes of the podcast seven psychopaths all right yeah, uh, yeah. directed by martin mcdonough i hope i pronounced his name right there um previous film was in bruges which i haven't seen but that's I'm a told good film fantastic. that is a good movie uh all-star ensemble cast include colin farrell sam rockwell woody harrelson and the unstoppable christopher walken it's a bizarre and hilarious black comedy about a struggling screenwriter who gets uh, caught up in a L.A. underground crime scene after his oddball friends kidnap a crime boss's beloved pet dog. It's hilarious. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, Really, really good um, sort of dark comedy film. Very clever. Um, Absolutely fantastic performances in it. Christopher Walken was brilliant, but uh, Sam Rockwell was hilarious as well. Can't recommend that one enough. However, that probably would have won my favourite film of 2012... But it was trumped at the very last minute uh, because I got to see Dread, which you uh, featured in the coming soon, I think, in the very first episode. Yeah, certainly, yeah. Didn't get to see it at the cinema. Um, uh, you haven't seen this yet. No, you've let me the DVD, so uh, we'll have a go. look at that later. Directed by Pete Travis, who directed Endgame and Vantage Point. Pete and... Travis? What, the Meridian bass player? Not the Meridian bass player, I have reason to. I had to get that one in. Yeah. Prog rock reference to the show, that was. Absolutely, that won't be there in the edit. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Um, yep, yeah, stars Carl Urban, uh, Olivia Thirlby and Lena Headey. Absolutely non-stop, rip-roaring action romp. Best film of 2012, without a doubt. Um, not an action film fan at all, really, as, you know, I, I quite like sci-fi with a bit of action. But um, generally, I like something with a bit more... Uh, it's a bit more it's digestible. A bit more cerebral. 
Yeah, I, I get dragged to a lot of action films by my other half. I saw The Avengers. I thought it was terrible last year. Absolutely fucking shite. But um, Dread absolutely loved it. Was a big 2000 AD fan back in the day. Um, this is like the comic, but beyond. It's obviously... I didn't get to see it in 3D, which is a bit of a disappointment. I'm told 3D, it's fantastic. Um, so, I mean, you know, it looks beautiful. The visuals are great. It's thoroughly convincing. Um, there is a scene where uh, Mama, who's the, the, the sort of the evil sort of antagonist played by Lena Headey, uh, basically opens up on an entire floor of a block with a, a Gatling gun. And that's staggering <laughs> to see. Um, lots of physical effects in it, very little in the way... Have you of... ever seen, um, was it Hardball, the John Woo film, where they open up on the room full of babies with the machine guns? Uh, I haven't seen that one. Oh, right. it's like, it's, if it's as spectacular as that, then... Uh, there are, I mean... Literally, just this, these blocks go. Obviously, you're familiar with 2001. These various blocks go many, many, many. There's like 70,000 residents in them, mm. like cities within within in a block. Um, and Dread is stuck on one of them, so it's just easier if they just get a great big gun and fuck up the floor of that block. It's really bizarre, but uh, fantastic, uh, fantastic film. Uh, definitely worth it for the, the for the visuals uh, more than anything else. The slow motion footage, some of the slow motion set pieces are incredible, um, especially the one in the finale. Um, don't want to give it away, but the the slow motion finale is is really incredible. Uh, so, dread favorite film of last year for me. Did you have a favorite? What was your favorite? Do you see many films actually from um, 2012? Yeah, I think. If I, I have to sort of stick with this, because one that made me laugh most, um, the one I enjoyed probably most, was probably uh, Zombies versus, uh, Cockneys versus Zombies. Cockneys versus Zombies. That yeah. just had me in stitches. That was very funny. It was, you know, also it was extremely well done. Fair enough. You know? Man. And Chaz and Dave man. doing those, you know, you got the dead, because they go, oh, I'm dead. Got to mention Chaz and Dave. Yeah, yeah, they shoot them in the head, but they won't stay dead, yeah. <laughs> and like Richard, and the, the sequence where the zombies are chasing Richard Bryars across the lawns at the old folks' home. It's superb, you know? Love it. Well, so that was be my choice for the best of all 2012. Fantastic. Well, that wraps up what we've been watching. Mm-hmm. That, uh, probably longer than the majority of the show will be. Yeah? Uh, we we haven't done this for a little while. It's been over a month since, since we did, or nearly, nearly two months since we did a show. So we had a, a lot to catch up there. Uh, coming soon. Anything coming soon? To be honest with you, I looked, I puked. I turned it off and didn't write anything down. Nothing at all? Nothing that sprung out. I only had a brief look, I'll be honest with you. And nothing Fair that enough. really kind of... Um, I may have missed a lot because I've been a bit pushed for time, like yourself has. Absolutely. But. There was a couple of things that uh, leapt out at me. The Lords of Salem is coming out, which is uh, the latest Rob Zombie horror flick. His previous ones didn't like House for a Thousand Corpses, but really liked... Uh, uh, what was it? Devil's Rejects. I yeah. quite like Devil's Rejects. Haven't seen the Halloween remakes that he did although they, no. they've you know they've been received quite well quite interested in lords of salem um only seen a bit of the poster and brief synopsis of this i haven't really gone into a lot of detail but uh looks like it could be quite good so right into that one um also there's a film called the host coming out um this is uh it caught my attention because the director is a guy called Andrew Nichol who directed gattaca which is uh, mm. another one of my favorite films good film um, been very quiet of late. I've done lots of films, but nothing that's really troubled the, the mainstream, I don't think. Um, but this is a, a sci-fi thriller. It's got parasitic aliens in it, so... 
Parasitic Aliens Parasitic is always, it's always a good, always, good start point. Always a, a place to keep my uh, my interest. Just going to mention, this is a film we spoke about. Um, I think I raised it in a previous podcast. I finally seen the trailer for it. World War Z. Yeah. The trailer is awesome. They are running zombies, though. But there is a scene, I think it, I don't know if it's meant to be the Great Wall of China, where there is just like a pile of, pile, pile, a huge pile of zombies. And zombies are crawling over zombies to get it. Literally, you've got a, the, the, over this great big barrier I mean, type thing. Sounds like a bit like that scene in Starship Troopers where all the bugs are up against the wall. They're it's running like up each that, other. Yeah. But it's with... Zombies, not, not insects. An infinitely greater number of either dead bodies, yeah. victims and zombies. And it it looks fantastic. The trailer looks incredible. Um, still, um, rumour is rife that uh, you know the production has been troubled. Obviously, mm. uh, Brad Pitt, I think, is put in quite a lot of money to it. Um, but it's supposed to have fallen out with the director. It's been a troubled production. Uh, but it comes out this this year. A film you mentioned, uh, I think it was Warm Bodies you mentioned, the... Um, uh, the the uh, zombie love, zombie wrong yeah, love story. Yeah, sort of a, a zomcom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's opened at number one in the box office in yeah. the States. And it it's, it's actually had some quite good reviews. Um, I, I think we may have reached the tipping point with zombies. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, my missus' his favourite thing is zombies have been done to death, so... Absolutely. But absolutely. no, but I mean, that sort of warm bodies, though, it's kind of... Um, I was a bit dubious about it, but then I was reading, I was watching, now it was either Charlie Brooker on Radio 5, no, uh, Mark Commode on Radio 5, or it was Winkleman on uh, film 2013. Right, yeah. And uh, she was saying that kind of, yeah, adults may not get it, but if you take it from the perspective of like an awkward 17-year-old trying to talk to a girl for the first time, then, you know, it's aimed at the teen market, you know, and apparently as far as teen top films are concerned, it's actually got a lot to say for itself and, yeah, and has some interesting social parallels as far as growing up and coming not of age gonna, kind of thing. I'm not going to make a beeline to see that one, but Zombies, no, I'm not watching it on zombies DVD still it comes hot out. at the moment. So World War Z, it's, so much money has been spent on that film that no zombie film has ever come close to making the amount of money that it would need for it to even break even. So it's probably going to be considered I'll a just bomb. set my beard on fire. <laughs> you did, just for anybody who... <coughs> yeah, my colleague has set his beard on fire whilst we were doing the podcast. Uh, I've lost my thread now. Yeah, World War Z, to break even, it would need... You know, I mean, mm. films about zombies do not have that kind of appeal. Uh, no. I mean, it would be like... You know, more people would have to have seen that than Mamma Mia or something like that for it to make any... You, you look like somebody who's been forced to see Mamma Mia. No, I just sort of like... Fortunately, I have, I have a lovely girlfriend who doesn't like musicals. Now, this is interesting. I don't like musicals either. I'm not a big musicals fan. But everybody is raving about Les Mis. It looks superb. It does look visually but, um I don't know, like musicals, but yeah. I might possibly the last, be convinced to go and see Lane. The last musical I actually watched and enjoyed was uh, Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd. That was superb. Yeah. I quite like Moulin Rouge as well. I thought that was quite good. I haven't seen that, but... Yeah, you know, I mean, not, not being that. funny. I mean, like I said, I grew up in a household where my mum used to love watching musicals. and uh, with the fucking sound of music. The sound oh, of music Jesus every time shit, and uh, The King and I. Like... And the only one that I ever actually liked was My Fair Lady. Yeah. I don't like my 
Yeah. I mean, maybe because Oliver it's, is all right. Yeah, yeah, Oliver's all right, but it's kind of yeah, maybe. But there again, both Oliver and My Fair Lady is sort of classics of literature. It's sure. Oscar Wilde, and it's a George Bernard Shaw, isn't it? Pygmalion. It's one of those Irish guys, anyway. <laughs> Oscar Wilde or George Bernard Shaw? Who the hell wrote Pygmalion? Well, either one of them, but it's obviously it's based on the classic film of kind of. Oliver yeah. was written by Charles Dickens. Yeah, it was. I stuck with something safe there. Yeah. But so apart from that, you know. And I don't mind things like the Rocky Horror Show, that kind of thing. Rocky Horror is all right. Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. But, but, um, apart from that, musicals can kiss my fat airy ass. Lame is looks fantastic. Mm. I don't know, think I'm going to see it at the cinema, but um, I wouldn't need too much convincing to actually give it a chance. I think. Yeah. And next, and when he has seen it, I'll tell you what colour his handbag is. Well, well, thank you very much for that incredibly politically incorrect and slightly homophobic comment. And with that, that wraps up the uh, the coming yeah. soon. Yeah, we're going to take a break. Um, and uh, yeah, is is a message from our sponsors while he kicks the shit out. Of me. Absolutely, in a very camp and slightly homosexual way. <laughs> It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals. We're sick to manage shit, you'd love it. In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I can handle anything. Action. <laughs> Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. <laughs> and romance. Now, he's decided it's time to go back for just one more adventure. Humans are such easy prey. Noel Miller presents... You're the problem, you little shit! The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Join me, Noel Mellor, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of ex-rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Thank you. Have a nice day. Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures of VHS or visit adventuresofvhs.com. We're back. In the room. And you survived the bitch slapping that I just gave you. There you go. Absolutely. Right, we're on to theme selection time. Um, theme selection this this episode. Youth Gone Wild. Yeah. So rebellion and youth generally doing what it's not supposed to do. Or maybe it's what youth is supposed to do, but the adults um, don't like it. In the case of my film, it's not what youth is supposed to do. Uh, I'll, oh, this is a very strange... Shall I, I shall start? You go uh, first, yeah. I'll play you the trailer. Mom's gonna kill you. Why? What are you doing? Dad, I'm driving. Get out of the car, Dad. Everybody else is wearing shorts. What's the matter? I don't want to talk about it. He's so hot. 
He has a girlfriend? Mm -hmm. Since when? You didn't know that? No. Okay. The question, what they do um, is they will sit up in this higher energy shape. Where are you riding? Oh, this? Yeah. It's my plan. For what? Oh, yes, sir. What are you doing? Don't come back. Hey, sir, don't go in. Sir, don't go in there. Don't trust me. Just don't go in there, please. Uh, my selection is Elephant, uh, I believe from 2002, uh, directed by Gus Van Zandt, uh, who other notable films include Milk, Goodwill Hunting, The Psycho Remake, and My Own Private Idaho. Oh, that is a good film. My Private Idaho is a great movie. I've still not that. seen that one, would you believe? Um, starring, at the time, a whole bunch of little-known little, little known high school kids. I think one or two of them might have gone into acting, but... I looked through the cast list and there was nobody that really sprung out at me. Um, but essentially, it's one of these films where I, I'll give you the plot and, and basically what's, you know, the, the synopsis. But there's a, a lot more behind it and what's going on to talk about as to where the whole kind of youth gone wild and rebellion bit comes into it. Um, essentially, for the whole of the film, we follow a diverse range of high school students as they go about their day at school um, unbeknown to them that two of their colleagues are planning something truly terrible. Um, it's based on a BBC TV production of the same name, directed by Alan Clark in uh, 1989. It was also called Elephant, set in Northern Ireland, and it was about the troubles in Northern hmm. Ireland. Um, I haven't seen that. I might have... I, I don't know, it rings a bell. So I might have seen yeah, it rings a bell here, but... Um, in 1989, I don't remember seeing it. I think it... Although it was made in Northern Ireland, I think it did get a UK full broadcast. Probably one of those things they show on BBC Two on like a Sunday evening. Yeah. Really. Um, the interaction between the students in the film, I'm obviously, uh, Gus Van Zandt. The film set in the States, yeah? The film is shifted over to the US, so right. it's a, um, it's a fairly idyllic, um, suburban high school, do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's not, uh, it's not an inner city, it's, it's in the suburbs. Um, and this is quite poignant because obviously we, just before Christmas, we had the, uh, the terrible situation in Connecticut with yeah. the, uh, there's the shooting over there. Uh, this deals with a little bit. Of, I, I mean, obviously, I, I haven't seen the um, the UK production. Um, the one theme that seems to have transmuted is there are no explanations given. But, you know, there's no point trying to, you know, in a short film, explain what happened in Northern Ireland. So this film doesn't try and explain why these two kids did what they did. But I mean, essentially, it's kind of modelled after the shooting in in Columbine. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, it's two kids eventually come back into the school and start wasting, laying waste to their colleagues and fellow students and whatnot. Um, the most striking thing about the film is the camera work. Uh, you're introduced to various individuals in the film um, and then the camera follows them. Um, and then there are interactions between other ones. Every now and again, it flips back in time and follows the other person 
that they were interacting with and you see where they were before where that interaction took place and where they go to and it all culminates on the point the shooting starts uh, quite early on one of the principal characters the sort of uh, teeny grungy type kid called john uh, who you know, all of these children have also got some kind of sort of social issue like john has got an alcoholic father um but you know dealing with him has made him late for school on that day so he got detention there is a, a photographer called elias who's obviously got some sort of interactive social issues and stuff and is feels you know a lot of alienation amongst the uh, uh amongst the the kids at this school um you don't actually see apart from one element of one flashback one of the kids who actually does the shooting you see briefly them getting mildly sort of victimized in a lesson but you don't see a history of it you don't see what drove them mm. to it and obviously there is one dominant person and one sort of patsy that kind of goes along with it um a lot is made on the internet movie database about whether they had any kind of a sort of a gay relationship whether they were both closet gays or whatever most of the arguments are centered on the fact that it's a gay director and all a lot of his other films have had a gay aspect to it. My private Idaho is uh, very private very Idaho. Gay. Milk was obviously about a gay politician and mm. so on and so forth. Um, I don't think it's about that. I the, the whole scene in question is the day before they do the shooting. Um, they basically the two guys actually snog on account of the fact that neither of them has ever kissed anyone and it's almost like a well, you know. Right, a passy shot Absolutely, thing, yeah. and it's uh, it's a very, very strange film. Um, the, like I said, the camera work on it, the way it tracks people through this sprawling high school is incredible. And the use of focus is, is absolutely staggering. The interaction between the students is fairly bland and mundane. Uh, I reckon five years ago, I would have been bored shitless and not got halfway through this film. So obviously, patience comes a little bit with uh, getting older. Um, I found it absolutely riveting. Um, and the fact it doesn't give explanations, that there is no closure to it. You don't see what drove them to do it. Oh, inevitably, they must have felt alienated and whatever. It doesn't even try. It doesn't try to give any kind of moral spin. It, they just do it. Um, so it is an act of rebellion. You know, they are rebelling against whatever system and whatever victimization they've suffered. But it leaves you wondering why they took it to such an extreme. Um, it's visually a stunning film. It's not that shocking from a violence point of view. I think they toned it down. Um, it's not a gore fest. There are some bizarre set pieces and some strange, uh, strange situations where they, they, you know, that one of them shoots the principal, uh, which of the of the school, which is quite shocking. Um, but you know. I'm really glad we didn't do The Youth Gone Wild just before Christmas because I don't think we could have really covered this film with no, what back happened then. Yeah, then. That's right, yeah. uh, so with a bit of retrospect, it, uh, it's probably all the more chilling for what happened in Connecticut. But that's, uh, that's Elephant from, I believe it's 2002. Now, I believe you've got a more uh, traditional rebellious Yes, I have got, got a... the um, what's probably the first of the classic teen rebellion movies. Play the trailer. Play the trailer.
remember the night. The first time I went out scrambling with the rebels. Remember? What do you want me to do? Send you some flowers? What's the matter, Kathy? I was only trying to... Get to work on these boys. Anybody bring a gun for me? Yeah, here's one. Phone's dead. You better send somebody for the militia. <laughs> Yep, that was from 1953. That was uh, Laszlo Benedict's classic film starring Marlon Brando, The Wild One. Um, quick word about Laszlo Benedict. A uh, jobbing kind of quite successful director. Did loads of films throughout the 1950s. Died in the mid-60s. Um, also known uh, for his uh, adaptation of Death of a Salesman, which, is a, which is a great either. film. Right, now, basically, the plot of The Wild One is as follows. It's a hot summer weekend in California, and uh, Marlon Brando, playing uh, Johnny Strabler and his mates, the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, are just out on a run to nowhere, as bikers tend to do in hot summer days all over the world. They ride into a small uh, town that's holding a motorcycle race, where they kind of cause a little bit of high-spirited trouble, and they're sort of like chased out by the stewards and the local law, but not before one of the gang... Uh, nicks a trophy for um, second place in some race and donates it to the gang leader, Johnny. Uh, they ride on and then they come to the small town of Wrightsville. Um, and they pull in initially just for a beer in the gas stop. Um, the locals, some of the locals are up in arms at the fact this bike gang's just ridden into town. And uh, But on the other hand, some of the locals, especially the guy that runs the local bar, is kind of his pupils are turned to dollar signs and he's thinking, yeah. I can sell a lot of beer to these guys. Um, so he'd start, while they're sort of like uh, getting some gas and that, they start uh, a few high-spirited incidents like, let's have a drag for beers, man. And they race up and down the ice street. And then just as they're sort of like having this drag race, some uh, old old fart shows up with his little Model C Ford and he's forced to swerve off the road and it's a lamppost damaging his car. Um, but not before he clips one of the bikes and knocks the bike over, breaking the leg of said rider. So um, the rest of the so the BMRC decide they're going to hang around until this guy can get his leg strapped up. And uh, the bikers are all sort of like, they take the piss out of the old bloke who they car they've damaged, but it's only a dented fender. And like a couple of them manage to sort of bend it into a position with their, with their bare hands, you know, because uh, it's implied throughout the film that some of these guys work in motor shops and that and they're just bikers at the weekend, weekend warrior types going out and having fun. So while they're waiting for said biker to have his leg patched up, they get the local bar. Where the bar where the sheriff's daughter wanders in. Now the sheriff is kind of is a bit intimidated by the by the by these bikers. Um but he can see he's saying, Oh look, 
the locals are going, well, run them out of town. He's going, well, if I run them out of town, it's going to cause a load of hassle and they're going to get pissy. Or what's that effect? Um, you know, they're not causing any harm at the moment. Just let them have their fun. They're only kids out, you know, sort of having, you know, sort of youthful enthusiasm type stuff. So he kind of doesn't act. Well, the sheriff's daughter, that's water coming down the drain pipe. Uh, the sheriff's daughter, meanwhile, has taken quite a shine to Marlon Brando as Johnny. And uh, is doing the kind of, as often happens in these kind of bike kind of movies, <laughs> can I have a ride on your bike, mister? Sort of thing, yeah? Mm-hmm. And uh, Johnny finds out that she's the sheriff's daughter and is a bit... Mm-hmm. It's all going to end badly, surely. Yeah. Uh, he's a bit kind of standoffish. And Marlon Brando is superb at this point. He's just kind of like... You know, people complain about modern teenagers, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Marlon Brando's like that, and this is 1953. Is Marlon Brando's character supposed to be a teenager? Or? Late teens, early twenties. Yeah. I mean, because the whole biker thing came came out because you got a lot of you know, end, Second World War ended, America ended up in the money, and um, there was all these sort of kids. They were you know they had money to spend. It was a boom time in the states. There was lots of cheap bikes coming onto the market. Sure. Um, and what became what, what the modern biker culture that we know now is, was born, and like. You know, so she's going back to 1940. I'll come back to the incident that inspired the film in a bit. But anyway, so Marlon Brando is acting in typical surly. There's one bit where one of the locals goes, Here, Johnny, what's BMRC stand for? Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. What you're rebelling against? What you got? Yeah, that's a classic, yeah. iconic line. That's the iconic yeah, line in the film. Line, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so they're, they're drinking. Marlon Brando's trying to kind of fancy the sheriff's daughter, but. Is a sheriff's daughter, and you know, she's with the man, man, you know, kind of really go out with a wony kind of thing. And then Enter the Beatles, uh, which is another bike gang, and it is spelt Beatles as in the band, okay. which I'll come to in a minute, led by a guy called Chino, who played uh, an excellent performance by Lee Marvin. Um, they pull up, they see that the BMRC are there, and uh, there's a bit of inter bike gang rivalry because it's implied that the uh, the, the Beatles and the BMRC used to be one larger club oh. until Chino and Johnny had a falling out, oh, went dear. their separate ways. Um, basically, Johnny and Chino start to have a brawl in the street. Um, all the gang guys gather around to watch and basically clog up the ice street. There's a big, you know, it's in school playgrounds. Fight, 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 fight. Absolutely. While they're brawling sort of thing. <clears throat> this is really pissing off some of the locals because they can't get down the ice street. And... Uh, one of the, one of the locals he's got his car and he tries to force his way through the crowd and actually sort of like um uh hurts another one of the hits and not hurts another one of the bikers and knocks over a couple of their bikes mm. kind of beginning to kind of mm-hmm. sheriff comes along and uh basically um he just he, he turns around and tells these guys to leave but then he nicks chino lee marvin and uh and they said, well, we ain't going nowhere without our, without our leader. And even the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club are going, well, he's, he's not one of the system, he's one of us. <laughs> so, therefore, you know, so the sheriff's beginning to get a situation on his hands. A bit of a standoff, yeah? Yeah. Meanwhile, Johnny has decided to take the girl out on a burn on his bike. Um, and they disappear off, and there's the kind of romantic subplot kind of thing where uh, she's trying to work out what this rebel's about and... Although I say it's a subplot, it's a part of the main exploration into the Brando's character in the film. Yeah. But um, I'm not going to go... It's something you have to watch the film to, to get your head around. Uh, meanwhile, back at the um, 
back in town, um, bikers have drunk the bar dry <laughs> and then decide they're going to do something about it. Uh, they, um, they're going to, uh, first of all, they, um, they basically, they bust Chino out, uh, out of jail and kind of start kind of drinking really heavily and start to trash the town. At which point the locals decide that the sheriff's going to do nothing. They're going to form a posse. Oh, an angry mob. An angry mob. And I'm not going to give the ending away. That's taking you about three quarters of the way through the film. And I'm not going to give a spoiler. Just that you've got kind of uh, the bikers, uh, the, the, the townsfolk are listening to no one. The bikers are only kind of list, kind of listening to Johnny and Chino. Um, the sheriff's daughter's kind of torn between the townsfolk and her father and her new infatuation. And it's, um, yeah. It's all set to end. It all set to end it. with a kind of, well, fairly explosive climax, but it's, you have yeah. to see the, you have to see the film to see how it ends because it does resolve quite nicely. How many times have you seen that film? Now? Oh, I've lost count. Yeah. I have lost count. It's one of my favourite movies. Fantastic. Because you know, you know me, when you were living here, we used to, what we've watched it a couple of times, you know? Uh, I've not seen it. No? I don't believe we watched it while oh, I was right. crashing over here. So it's one of those. Um, I have not seen it. Ah. Um, I've only got it on VHS, but you can get it. You have to get the DVD or something. It's on the list. I'm working my way through yeah. these films that you probably now, should have seen. reasons why you should see this film. First of all, the cast. Marlon Brando is one of his iconic roles. You know, he's got the with the with the kind of motorcycle cap at the angle and he's got his big triumph, whatever it is, triumph sapphire, whatever it is. And But I'll also give maximum credit to Lee Marvin as well because Lee Marvin is just as good as Brando is in this. Awesome. Playing the drunken Chino is kind of... A, a, Lee Marvin does a fantastic drunk, whether he's doing it in a Western or a biker movie or a war movie or whatever. Lee Marvin is just great and he's superb in this. Rest of the cast are really good as well. No real names. Most of them kind of had their careers in B-movies or US telly. So nothing that probably means anything that's over there, though, if you're kind of a fan of things like Paint and Place, sure. some of the names might turn up. But they're good. They're good, yeah? Awesome. <clears throat> um, the film was banned in the UK until 1968 for being well subversive. Mm. And it wasn't until the late night, it wasn't until nineteen sixty eight they actually gave it an extra certificate. Although nowadays it's a it's a twelve. Yeah, it is quite tame by today's standard. But I mean, this is the first kind of film that's kind of dealing with youth out of control. I mean, this is a good three or four years before. Uh, what's his name? James Dean did Rebel Without a Cause. Of course, yeah. You know, so. Um, you know, and the only ones I can think of, I mean, if any listeners out there can point me in the direction of any sort of like Teen Rebellion movies before this, then go for it. Because the only one I can think of is possibly uh, Reefer Madness, which is so, which is so funny. It's going to turn up on a so bad. It's great at some point. Now, yeah? Reefer Madness, wasn't that like a, a public information film? Like? It was made as a public information film about what happens if your children smoke marriage marijuana. <laughs> But, um, I think it's on public domain, that one. Yes, I mean... It's going to feature soon. Yeah, again, I've got it on DVD, so it's going to turn up. Um, now, two bands in real life have taken their name from the from this film. Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, obviously. And the Beatles. And uh, the Beatles took their name from that? Yeah. Because they were the Silver Beatles before, weren't they? Yeah, and before that, they were the Quarrymen. 
Okay. And uh, apparently John Lennon sort of like saw the kind of plot synopsis, or he might have even seen it on one of the Beetle Stroke Quarrymen's trips to Hamburg. Mm. And uh, that's where he claims he got the name from. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and now it's also based on a real incident. 4th of July, 1947, in the town of Hollister, California. Um, a load of different bike gangs descended on this town, the Hollister in California, for these have motorcycle racing, drag racing. Sure. Descended on there for their 4th of July run out. And um, there was a camera crew reporting on this. And it was well publicised that this is where all the bikers in California were going to meet. <laughs> so Time magazine sent a uh, photojournalist crew out. Oh, cool. And uh, through a load of very staged photographs of bikers with shed loads of beer, man, and dragging down the ice street. Uh, yeah, did they have an agenda? Uh, probably. Yeah. And um, apparently there were a few kind of incidents that led to two or three arrests. But considering there was about 5,000 bikers in town that day, oh, um, it was an agenda, but it kind of blew up. It's a typical night out in Bristol. <laughs> yeah. But um, like I said, it was blown up by the press. And then even the trailer for the film, as you probably, if you just heard, um, well, it actually might be the bit that splashed across the screen, so you might not have heard it says about the horrors that descend on American towns with the bikers, etc. Um, it's just a great movie. And so, and, um, but it's also interesting because it, the way it shows the kind of... the, 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 the rebellion of youth and the, and the attitude of the, ad, the, quotes, adults around to the rebellion of youth. There's some bits where they're quite... They got, some adults are kind of old. Kids want to drink, I'll send them beer. And then you've got like, the sheriff and a couple of the other townsfolk. Oh, they're just youngsters out having a good time. And the other one is, they got long hair and motorcycles. Shoot the bastards. <laughs> kind of attitude, you know? Absolutely. A um, section of uh, Middle which, America. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, whether you're in the Middle America or suburban Britain, it's still attitudes that ring true today. For sure. You know, and um, for a 1950-53 film, Okay, it's in black and white, and um, it's very, very tame by today's standards. But it hasn't dated. It hasn't dated. You know, well, it's I mean, still. It's I still find it as fresh it's, today uh, as. It, I suppose it's of its time. Mm. It's documenting that period in time. Yeah, it I doesn't mean, date because it's from. I first saw it on yeah. telly back in about nineteen seventy something, cool. late late seventies. Um, you know, I can still watch it now and find it just as gripping as I did back then. That's uh, The Wild One, 1953, directed by Laszlo Benedict and uh, the iconic uh, performance by Marlon Brando. One of the, uh, my opinion, one of the greatest films ever made. Nice. Superb. So cool. We're going to take another break there. And when we come back, uh, I think we've got a pretty good So Bad It's Great. We've moment. got a couple of, we've got a couple of it's classics gonna for you. It's going to be a storm, but we'll be back really soon. Good evening, folks. Do you enjoy action and adventure? romance and comedy how about long strolls on the beach and a fine champagne by moonlight do you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain or would you rather listen to some in-depth conversation about film where many timely and poignant observations and witticisms are made mo here from the drunk on vhs podcast and if you like any of those things then i have some bad news for you Drunk on VHS has none of these. 
but you should listen anyway, because I asked him nicely and said, please, oh wait, please, tune in every Wednesday for new episodes exclusively at CouchCutter.com. Bring the family, bring your friends. Okay, we're back, and before we uh, carry on with the final part of the podcast, uh, just a couple of alteration results for you. Findus has won the uh, 5.15 at Chepstow, and uh, Lidl's own brand was second, beaten favourite. Oh dear, yeah. oh dear. Never mind. Yeah. Right, we've reached the final part of the show. It's so bad, it's great. Just like uh, that joke. Just like that joke. <laughs> you know. Uh, we've got a couple of classics this time. You're going to kick us off? I'm going to kick us off. What Play the got? trailer, boy. Deep in the Everglades. As long as they're all brown-nosing each other, they ain't out here trying to arrest us for hunting. <laughs> A danger is lurking. Think there's something in the water! Created by man. Things are worse than we thought. Nature is threatened. The only way to stop it is to find something bigger. You want a bigger gator? Something better. I'll get you. That's this is um, I've, last few shows I've gone back into the past, um, to, um, to, like, done a lot of fifties B movies, but this one is bang up to date. Only came out just over a year ago, two thousand eleven. Mega Python versus Gatoroid, directed by Mary Lambert, who um, whose brief flirtation with the mainstream of horror cinema uh, gave us um, the Attic and the two Pet Cemetery films. Fair enough. Uh, but then she kind of resulted back to doing stuff for the sci-fi and horror channel and making classic B-movies. Which, Mary Lambert, if you ever get to listen to this, I salute you for, because that's where you're at your best. Um, and this is one of her latest creations. Again, this is straight the DVD job. This never got a cinema release. Um, it plays all the time on the sci-fi channel. It's, I know. Uh, it's a favourite. Uh, it, is, it, it is a classic. Right, the plot is the, plot, the film kicks off as such. You've got this eco-scientist, Dr. Nicky Riley, played by 80s pop sensation, Debbie Gibson. Still looking quite attractive, I have to she say. She is. Um, and she's her and her team of eco-warriors 
or raiding the home of a Florida snake breeder to liberate his collection of unfeasibly large pythons. There's a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> yes, there's lots of jokes in this film. So they get these large collection of about a dozen or so unfeasibly large pythons. And believe me, as someone that's seen pythons at zoos and that, these pythons are unfeasibly large. And they bundle them into sacks, they dry up the Florida Everglades and set them free. As you do. As you do. Was that in the name of science? In the name of animal liberation. Because it's wrong to keep these beautiful creatures in captivity when they should be in the wild. Despite the fact that they're not actually native to the Florida Everglades, but we won't go there for a bit. Fast forward an undisclosed period of time, and part ranger Terry O'Hara, played by 80s pop sensation Tiffany... Who hasn't, that has to be said. Hasn't aged particularly well. well. She's had a ridiculous boob job as well. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see the Botox oozing out of her eye sockets. But anyway, she's pissing off the local rednecks, one of which happens to be her boyfriend and future father-in-law. Not the same guy. <laughs> what? <laughs> awesome. Now, that was a good joke. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, they're different people, boyfriend and future father-in-law. And... Uh, Man, she's not issuing any gator hunting permits this, this season. And she's trying to say, well, that's because, like, there's the gators are going missing. You can't find the gators. You don't need the cullen because something's killing them. It's all these bloody snakes that have been released into the, into the glades, man. So it's a... They say she actually is plan number one. Well, um, basically... Uh, if pythons are killing the gators, kill the pythons. Oh. Issue rednecks with python hunting licences. Python hunting? Awesome. Yeah. Rednecks pile into their airboats and jeeps and 4v4s and pick up their kind of huge array of assault weaponry and shoot off into the Everglades to kick python butt. Do pythons have butts in the traditional sense? Yeah, they've got to have an arsehole somewhere, haven't they? No, absolutely. Yes, but... but anyway... Um, However, pythons, unfeasibly large pythons, uh, are rather better at killing things than the rednecks. And all the rednecks, including Tis' boyfriend, get snuffed in various ways by unfeasibly large pythons. This pisses Tiffany off. Don't piss Tiffany off. Yeah. So she hatches revenge plan number two. Goes into the nearest town and goes to the gym where she meets up with the local bodybuilders. And says, uh, um, reasoning that the best way to get rid of unfeasibly large pythons is to make the gators a bit bigger so they can fight and kill the pythons. Do you take the gators to the gym? No. <laughs> she, um, she clears out the gym of steroids. Steroids, okay. Including one batch that one of these bodybuilders says uh, is super strong and experimental batch that's came straight out of the lab, but it's too dangerous to use. Did any of these gators get banned internationally from cycling? <laughs> Probably, if I took this lot. And I, anyway, you've got the kind of, I wouldn't use that if I were you. But Tiffany wants to kick serious python butt with her super, super beefed up steroided gators. So um, injecting a load of dead chickens, she feeds them to gators. Okay. And uh, waits for nature to take its course. Six months later, enter a scientist uh, who is also just happens to be an ex-Special Forces commando. You've got to be both, haven't you? Yeah. Dr. Diego Cortez, 
played by a bloke called Alfonso uh, Marines, who's apparently some American. He was in LA Law and some American TV drama series, isn't it? Sweet. Um, uh, he goes. There's people have been vanishing in the Everglades at an alarming rate. And Martinez has kind of uh, goes into the Everglades and come out warning that the whole place is teeming with snakes and gators thirty times their normal size. Alarm bells would ring, eyebrows yeah. would be raised. Now, thirty times their normal size. The, the big the California gator <laughs> is about twelve foot long. Right. So thirty times twelve foot. Well, you're talking ocean liner size, are you not? Yeah. They're not that big, though, are they? They're getting that way. Ah, excellent. Which makes me wonder, why haven't they been spotted before? Okay. So they're, they're very stealthy ocean liner size. Size gators. And pythons can be 20 foot long when fully grown. Ooh. And because the pythons have been eating the gators and then taking the steroids that's in their system. Oh, super fuck-off pythons. Hence the mega pythons. Ah. On steroids. Oh, yeah, it's also mentioned that um, these steroids can bring out anger issues. Okay, angry, angry steroid-fueled pythons and gator-eating pythons. And, gator and python-eating gators. Gator, of course. It's in the food chain, then. That's yeah, terrible. exactly. Um, uh, he says, everyone, that the uh, basically is running around saying that Tiffany kind of, uh, <laughs> shut, the, shut the Everglades, bring in the National Guard... Newcomb from Orbit, the kind of thing, yeah? <coughs> well, not Newcomb from Orbit, but that kind of thing. Um, however, Tiffany's not impressed and says, nature mistake, it's caught. She didn't say, I think we're alone now. <laughs> not at this point. Yo, she does not say, no. Oh, no. I re- I've, I've seen part of this film. I have not seen that. <laughs> that bit in a minute. Um, they're trying to kind of... Uh, uh, Tiffany's been trying to do a fundraiser to kind of raise money, or Tiffany's character, this Terry O'Hara bird, he's trying to do a fundraiser to kind of get money from rich businessmen to open up a, buy a part of, the, part of this special part of the Glades and to gate a sanctuary. Um, and she's organising this big charity event where the great and the good of Florida are going to show up. And uh, monkey Mickey Dolence is providing the... Uh, who is still alive, is um is providing the uh well he is at the time of recording is um providing the entertainment. Um in the background of all this there's been a few incidents where eco scientist Debbie Gibson, uh aka Dr. Nicky Ride, has been showing up and they've been haranguing about native species and foreign inter- alien introductions and Despite the, the fact that she was responsible for the biggest introduction of a, a species that didn't belong there. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, and uh, she's trying to basically, try, he's trying to stop the uh, special forces eco-scientist Dr. Diego Cortez from going out and killing gators. And also she's got footage of, De- of Tiffany feeding the, because she's trying to monitor the gators, they put up her. Uh, CCTV cameras, and um, she try and she's got evidence of her feeding gators with steroid injected chickens. Oh dear! And she's trying to sort of blackmail her into doing various bits and pieces of not kind of eco's stuff. <laughs> got to watch the, the film to find out. Anyway, um, they've got this kind of event, and the, the event's coming up. This special meet deal, and it happens, 
and uh, eco-scientist Debbie Gibson shows up to try and stop. Um, basically, a bitch fight breaks out between Tiffany and Debbie Gibson, and there's kind of ripping off of clothes, rolling in mud, uh, flying through, there's cream cakes involved. It sounds like it's all really tastefully done. <laughs> very tastefully done, yeah. And they end up kind of fighting across this lawn and rolling into this swamp. Meanwhile, while they're bitch fighting in the in, in the river, just near this uh, marquee where they've got this event, the uh, gators and the pythons are, are coming out of the swamp yeah. and uh, attack the party, um, including a uh, mon- eating monkey, uh, python eating former monkey, Mickey Dolance, who in the film at this point is dead. Alone in real life, he's still alive. Thank you very much for clarifying that, yeah. dude. And um, having eaten the dinner guests, they then decide they're going to attack Miami. Miami is under attack from... Meanwhile, in the swamp, you've got kind of Debbie Gibson and Tiffany, they're brawling with each other. And then they suddenly realise how quiet it's gone. And that's where the line, I think we're alone now, comes up. <laughs> from the lips of Tiffany. Shitfire. Jesus um, Christ. <laughs> they're about to be attacked by a lion. I think it's a snake or maybe a gator. When the uh, ex-special forces um, eco-scientist shows up and saves them. And then it's down to Debbie Gibson, Tiffany, and this bloke that was in LA Law to save probably the world from being overrun by mutant giants. 80 foot, 200 foot long crocodiles and pythons. Awesome. Um, I'm not going to give the ending away because I highly recommend that you watch it. Uh, <coughs> but it involves a nuclear power station, crop dusters, and several tons of white explosive. Sweet. It had to, really. There was yeah. no other way that was going to finish. Yeah. I've seen bits of this film, I've not seen it all the way through. Um, it did look pretty shocking. It's bad. In a good way? In a very good way. I mean, the CGI is a bit iffy. It's that kind of, um, we haven't quite got the budget to do it properly type um, CGI. But that adds to the to the feel of the film. Um, various people being eaten by gators and snakes is, quite, it, it, had me, it had me kind of uh, needing a change of underpants because <laughs> I was letting a little bit of wee-wee out while I was laughing. Lovely. Yeah. Um like I said, the cast are complete unknowns, uh, relatively unknowns. Debbie Gibson and... Because both Debbie Gibson and Tiffany have done a fair number of B-movies recently, haven't they? We watched um, Debbie Gibson in Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. Giant Octopus. Tiffany was in uh, this film about some kind of sort of... Uh, sort of. I can't remember whether it was a... I'm sure she did one with like a Bigfoot type creature. In. Mm. She did a really terrible one, which uh, I think she got slaughtered in quite early um but yeah she's an awful one. debbie gibson i got a bit of time for um but uh no tiffany's bloody terrible yeah um like i said the only other i was going through the cast list um apart from tiffany uh debbie gibson and alfonso martinez the only other person of note is a guy called arden co or sorry, a girl called arden co japan uh, american chinese actress who um, has a fairly major role in CSI New York. Fair enough. 
But apart from that, you're talking about people that Internet Movie Database doesn't know much about, you know? <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, we're talking about this. We're talking about the dregs of American B-movie actors, yeah? But, like I said, it's played semi it's played semi serious, but the tone's always in cheek. You know, it's not because I think the problem with a lot of these B movies is you, you can take itself too seriously. Definitely. Or you yeah. can do the other mistake and, and Just play be it too, too self aware, yeah. Well this one manages to strike the balance in my opinion. It's it it makes fun of itself oh you like to think we're alone now line and all this kind of thing when it needs to. And like Mickey Dolitz in his five minutes on the film going, Hi, I'm Mickey Dolitz. I used to be in the monkeys all the time, yeah. <laughs> um uh, sort of like like that, but it's kind of plays it deadpan when it needs to. Cool. You know, so um <clears throat> like I said, it has got a plot, you can drive tractors through the gaps in it. <laughs> you can drive giant snakes through the gaps in it, yeah. Let alone crocagators, whatever they're called. But um it's it's a good brainless fun B movie, but if you're into good brainless fun B movies, it's, you know going right back to the giant gear monster which you talk about in episode one, it's a good worthy addition to that canon in my opinion. So what was it? Mega Mega Python, Mega Python. Now, what's versus the, Gatoroid. Where does the Gatoroid bit come into it? Uh, Mega Python's on steroids. Oh steroids! Ah oh, shit! There you go. I did wonder. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Gator, I'm down with that. That's yeah, cool. it's out on DVD. Um, you can actually, I've got it in a box set along with uh, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, Crocosaurus versus Killer Gator, and this kind of thing. Sharktopus. Sharktopus is in the same box set as well. Awesome. So. That is such a fantastic film. But, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah. Mega Python versus Gatoroid, 2011. It's out on DVD. Um, it's on all these. Blaming, uh, you know, Blink Box and the like streaming sites. Go watch it. Take your brain out for two hours. You won't regret it. Well, following on from that, and it follows on really nicely. As you could tell, I wasn't aware of the steroid aspect of the Gators and Gatorade. It now makes sense. Despite the fact I said it earlier, earlier in my description of the plot. No, I. I'd seen, I've not actually seen what made the Gators big. Ah, right, okay. So yeah. I didn't know, and I didn't obviously put two and two together there. I thought it was some kind of like robotic connection, <laughs> mechanical Gators. Or, the Gatoroid, you think of something a bit more sort of spacey, but yeah, Gatoroid, Gators on steroids, Gatoroid. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, funnily enough, although this is from a little bit before, this next film that I'm going to talk about does indeed uh, also share this plot sort of device of adding some kind of substance to ordinary sized animals and turning them into massive animals with terrible consequences. Which we talked about in the past with like the Leapers. I'm, I'm going to talk about that as well, <laughs> funnily enough. And we enough. mentioned it with them as well. And that kind of indeed. Thing. So, roll the trainer. After H.G. Wells' first novel, The Time Machine, predicted total destruction by nuclear warfare, the first atomic bomb was detonated. Seventy-one years after his book, First Men in the Moon, another H.G. Wells prediction came true. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. In other books, he predicted ray guns, sonic signaling devices, radio signals bouncing from planet to planet, all realities now. But where does fiction end and reality begin? 
are the dreaded fire ants from Africa, a warning of H.G. Wells' vision of nature run amok. Do the killer bees of South America give us a hint of the shape of things to come? In one of his most fantastic books, The Food of the Gods, Wells predicted what could happen in an ecology gone berserk, transforming harmless insects and animals into huge and vicious beasts preying on the flesh of humans. of the gods. Imagine a rooster six feet tall. Swarms of hawk-sized wasps and panther-sized rats hunting humans in packs. Now, American International Pictures brings this most incredible H.G. Wells science fiction classic to the screen, The Food of the Gods. You know, how did your husband happen to feed it to the chickens? Well, when we found out it weren't no oil, there was nothing to do about it, so we fed it to the chicks. I'm way ahead of you, kid. I'm going to take this stuff and have it converted to plant food. Well, then you're going to feed all the big animals with big pets. Right on. And within five years, hunger will be a thing of the past. H.G. Wells' most frightening prediction in The Food of the Gods also prove accurate. Think about it. There you go. Food of the Gods, 1976, directed by Bert I. Gordon, uh, also known as the Notorious B.I.G. <laughs> because of his initials. A uh, veteran director of many cult monster movies from the 50s through to the late 80s. Notable highlights include The Cyclops, The Amazing Colossal Man, War of the Colossal Beast, Earth vs. the Spider. Are, those are two fantastic films. And Empire of the Ants, starring Joan Collins. I've seen all of them apart from Empire of the Ants. Empire of the Ants looks fantastic in a So Bad It's Great. Well, I'm going to get mm. that. That could possibly be my next mm. So Bad War It's Great. The, also, uh, The Amazing Colossal Man and War of the Colossal Beast, which is the follow-up to it, are, again, they're two classics. I haven't got those, but I have also got Earth vs. the Spider to check out, so that could also be a contender too. Look out for the truck in there. I certainly will do. Um, stars, now I've put down, honestly, you've never heard of any of them, promise. I've not heard of anybody in this film um, I won't go through a cast list because there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, disposable actors in this. It has to be said, but um, I'll have an attempt at the uh, the plot. Uh, it's going to be one of my my long drawn out ones go for because it. there are a few in this that uh, that are quite outstanding. I might interject a few points, but carry on. Of course. Uh, Morgan, a pro footballer, you only ever find out is, you don't know if it's a surname or first name, he's just Morgan. Morgan. Well, 
he's not Welsh. It's set in American. He's a pro footballer, and I mean American football. That's the camp version of rugby with crash helmets. Yeah. Um, and a couple of coaches from the team decide to spend some downtime between games by going on a hunting break on a remote offshore island. Things start to go wrong pretty early on when one of these team coaches is killed by a small swarm of oversized wasps, which, despite being badly animated 2D shadows painted onto the screen really badly, the special effects from this particular bit with the wasps is atrocious. Had they escaped from Green Hill? They hadn't escaped from Green Hill, which is a connection to my previous so bad. Yeah, it's that's good, why, but, that's uh, why I mentioned it. Yeah. No, they... They're, this is a colour film, and Green Hell was a black and white film. Uh, oh dear. <laughs> these, when they're flying around, these wasps are quite obviously cell-painted on the front. So they sting this bloke by not really going anywhere near him. It's atrocious. But when they kill one, it was giant plastic. <laughs> it's really appalling. Uh, yeah. Um, they're almost completely bulletproof, seemingly, as well. Um Morgan goes to try and find help when, obviously, this coach has been stung by these giant wasps. Um, and he stumbles upon a solitary farm building owned by a creepy couple who was later revealed are Mr. and Mrs. Skinner. Um, before knocking on the Skinner's front door, Morgan is drawn to an unusual sound emanating from the barn. And lo and behold, he is attacked by a giant chicken. Yeah. Um, poor giant chicken. After a bit of a tussle, he kills with a pitchfork. He just stabs this giant chicken in the stomach. Does it like your family go out the eye open at the end? And <laughs> it's got quite a good death scene, I have to say. And it's quite a convincing. It's certainly more convincing than the wasps. Okay. Um, Mrs. Skinner suddenly appears and is quite obviously a fruit loop. And she blathers on about how the stuff is a gift to her and her husband from God. And Mr. Skinner is away on the mainland in the big city, setting up a business deal that will make them millionaires. Little does she know that while Mr. Skinner had gone to the big city and struck said deal, on his return to the island, he was brutally mauled by the film's main antagonist, Giant Killer Rats. Gotta love Giant Killer Rats. I had one of them. I remember Burger, don't uh, We had rats as well. We had yeah. pet rats too. But um, now, unlike Night of the Lepus, which obviously was one of my previous 1970s uh, So Bad It's mm. Great, the giant animals from then on actually do look very, very convincing. There are some men in suits, but they're very, very tastefully done. And um, unlike Night of the Lepus, where rabbits were never, ever going to be frightening... Um, they don't film them in slow motion or anything like that. These rats are actually quite nasty, but very convincingly nasty looking. Well, I suppose it's a step up from whippets in fur coats, isn't it? It's a lot better than whippets in fur coats. Okay. At that point, Morgan and the surviving coach friend superfluous cannon fodder type character, uh, hinting that possibly his time might be short in this film, um, they decide it's best to retreat back to the mainland with the body of their wasp-murdered colleague. Um, but Morgan vows to return and figure out exactly what is going on. So he does the following day, uh, yet rather stupidly, um, knowing that the island is plagued at least by giant mutant bloodthirsty animals, he returns with just the same nameless coach companion type... Uh, now, he's basically the, the red shirt in this film. There's no two ways. Um, and a fairly useless hunting rifle that he had with him the day before. Uh, it appears he didn't think to raise the alarm with the police, the military, or even anyone completely scientific or anything. He's a prat, basically. He's just seen it all, but just decided to go back the first day. <coughs> now, hang on. Let me you a minute here. 
looking back at these, a lot of these films that we've covered in So Bad It's Good, because we've done a lot of these giant creature movies. Oh, of course. There seem to have been a, an and overrated I'm beginning theme, to pick up a, a concurrent theme. That the heroes are normally complete and utter prats. This is most definitely the case. Get right back to the first one. Go back and check out some of the other episodes, because you've got that idiot in the giant gear monster that kind of... Uh, Completely. Isn't phased by the fact that there's a 60-foot lizard running around Arizona, you know? It happens all the time. Right up to Python and Gatorade, where, you know... Oh, yeah, he's you know, sort of like ocean line of sight crocodiles. You've got to protect them, isn't it? Yeah, carry on, yeah. There we go. It's observation. It gets better, though. Um, oh, pretty sandy, it's pretty, pretty good. Line, yeah. <laughs> oh, the big chicken is hilarious. But um, Meanwhile, back at the Skinner's Farm... Could you say it was hempet? Oh, <laughs> shut your face, dude. Uh, back at the Skinner's Farm, a stereotypical evil businessman, Bensington, you only hear his surname, you don't know what his first name is, um, and his wet-behind-the-ears female scientific advisor, Lorna, arrive. They'd met Mr. Skinner the previous day and agreed to uh, meet him back at the island at the farm to view the merchandise, in inverted commas, okay? But what is the merchandise? Why, it's a bizarre, white, sloppy, milk-type liquid that suddenly began bubbling up from the ground on the Skinner's land. Naturally, their first instinct was to experiment with mixing it into their farm animals' food, as any sane person would do. Um, and lo and behold, the next offspring of that animal grows to ridiculous proportions. We're seeing parallels with the uh, the gators here. It's uh, the steroids coming up from the ground. Okay. While initially sceptical, Bensington takes one look at the giant, albeit dead, chicken in the barn and decides it's going to be the answer to solving the world's food crisis, presumably by mass marketing... There we go. By mass marketing the mysterious white gloop to farmers, uh, they too can grow giant livestock. Bigger livestock equals more food for everyone. Despite the fact you would eat, we would take more to produce. Shh, the... we don't talk about that. Sorry, that's my eco warning. There we go. Uh, at that point, Morgan returns, and there's a very big, dumb, philosophical argument between him and Bensington about the moral rights and wrongs of what's happened on the island. Um, and it might be an anti-capitalist statement on behalf of the director, but frankly, the script is so poor, it's really hard to tell. It's really awful. Um, thankfully, we're rescued from this crap by an attack of hundreds of giant rats, and Bensington gets eaten before he can annoy us any further. Hooray! Yeah. Absolutely. Hoist um, the boy's own petard. There we go. Uh, scientific advisor manages uh, Lorna. This is the, the, the lady that came with him. Is she foxy? Uh, uh, here we go. Manages to say nothing scientific whatsoever throughout the entire film. She's purely there to be Morgan's female interest. So, yeah, she's a bit foxy. Well, um, I because, you, you know, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be a good B-movie if it weren't for It's a very typical, politically incorrect 70s statement. Yeah. The female bird is there for science, and she says nothing scientific whatsoever throughout the entire movie. It's, uh, it's interesting. Um, however, Morgan seems to be more interested in risking his and his friend's life in increasing the bizarre series of revenge attacks on the island giant mutant animal population they locate the oversized wasp nest and blow it up with dynamite then lure scores of giant rats to their deaths on an electrified fence and again shades of night of the leapers there um but it's clear that the rats have the weight of numbers on their side there are too many of them at which point morgan ascertains that perhaps the giant rats can't swim 
Now, this is discussed in the film, right? Um, obviously, normal rats are very good swimmers, but Morgan argues that these are giant rats. Um, now weighing many times more than they used to, and without the long process of evolution, they are probably too big and heavy to be giant, um, decent swimmers. Yeah, just like elephants and hippos can't swim. Either, Absolutely, can I mean they're shit at swimming. Yeah. In light of this stunning scientific insight, uh, Morgan's friend stupidly agrees to be party to Morgan's daftest plan yet to blow up a nearby flood barrier to flood the rat-infested portion of the island. Morgan's friend is finally mauled by a rat, having laid the explosive charges. Hooray! Morgan then retreats back to the Skinner's farm, where Morgan, Lorna, and the increasingly doodally Mrs. Skinner barricade themselves in and try and fight off a sustained mass rat attack as the film draws to its explosive and soggy conclusion. Food of the gods, dude. Yeah. Apparently there was a 1989 sequel called Nor Food of the Gods 2, um, which scores even lower than, than Food of the Gods in the internet movie database. I may definitely have to track that yes. down. Um, so, yeah... Food of the Gods, not quite as intrinsically silly as uh, Night of the Lepus. And from an effects point of view, apart from the wasps at the beginning, which probably torpedo the whole film from a visual spectacle, Mm. the remaining visuals, the rats especially, are extremely convincing. Um, I don't know how they make it look like the rats are being shot. I wonder whether they are actually genuinely shooting the rats with air rifles and then filming the blood splatter in slow-mo. That's quite disturbing. Um, this character of Morgan, I, I mean, stupidity just goes beyond. It's completely how you would not rid an island of uh, unwanted giant mutant uh, giant mutant stuff. Yeah, well, so but he had, he, given me Joe. He hadn't actually sat down and watched sort of Jurassic Park, had he? So at that point, so. there we go, there we go, yeah. misguided. Uh, so, Food of the Gods, um, not the greatest. So bad, it's uh, you know, so bad, it's great. But uh, definitely one of the more interesting ones I've seen recently. Definitely qualifies. Um, I really like it. I'll have to lend it to you. You said you might have seen this at some point. Um, it rings big bells from many, many years ago. But like I said. So many movies over the years, they tend to blur at times, yeah? They do. Um, so, with that, that's uh, that's the end of So Bad It's Great. That's my choice. Uh, all that remains is to uh, to wrap up the episode. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple of extra ones here. I, I've actually had to write this down, because I've messed up the, uh, the website address, the email address, so many times. I've written these down. You can check us out, if you haven't already done so, at www.crashandburnmoviepodcast.com .co.uk uh, You can send us email at feedback at crashandburnmoviepodcast.co.uk um, And from the website you can also check out our Twitter feed and Facebook page. You can find some reviews of contemporary albums that I've done on www.gigape.com um, I'm listed as Mystic Jim and you can also see the um, the blog that I do on the sort of amateur filmmaking that I'm doing at the moment at www.mysticgym.blogspot.com John? Yeah, um, you can check out my radio show on BCFM www.bcfm.org.uk 93.2 FM in the Bristol area 
I too have an album review blog, um, which is at Blogspot. Put in BCFN Blogspot, and you'll find it. Uh, Sunday Rock Show. Um, that's where you'll find our uh, album reviews and a bit of music news and uh, sort of like some classic album roundups and complete detailed playlists of the music show. So if you're not sick of us already, you can get more of us from those places. Yeah, and uh, my band Alien Stashing has a new album out, so uh, look out for that. It's called On a Pinstripe Planet. Look up Alien Stashing on, on the social engine of your choice and you'll track us down. Superb. Well, all being well, with the slightly shortened format of the show, it will not be such a big wait till the next episode. Um, I think we're probably looking early March, isn't it? So uh, yeah. uh, we'll definitely get that sorted. I it's... completely forgot my, uh, my missus suggested that we do a love-themed show for Valentine's Day, but we, we forgot about that. So. Ah, darn. Well... Who knows? Maybe next year. Because yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've always been thinking about twisted love movies, you see, so. It would never be straight rom coms, would it, for this Not from show? Us. Not from us. Um, so, all that remains is to thank you for listening. Look out for the next show, which will be coming out, hopefully, in about two weeks' time. Um, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Cheerio. Cheerio. See ya.